Matthew chapter 7. We're studying through the gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're finishing the Sermon on the Mount this morning. At the end of chapter 7, we're looking at verses 13 through 29. That's our text. The topic we'll find there, Jesus warns you about the broad way that leads to destruction. The title of our message, Give No Regards to Broadway. Let's have a word of prayer. Rhett wants me to sing, but I'm not going to. Maybe a little later. Father, thank you for our morning. I pray, Lord, that amidst all the, the distraction in our own hearts and in the world today, that we would be able to focus our attention on the words that you want to speak to us. Use this text, take it, Lord, in hand and speak it to us in a very personal way, in a very intimate way. I pray that we would want to make application first for ourselves and then to others and that we would want to walk in love at all times, Lord, properly representing you. Have your way in our hearts, Lord, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. All roads do lead to God. Now, that does not mean everybody will be saved in the end. It means everyone, believer and non-believer, will appear before God. Believers in Jesus Christ will appear before what is called the judgment seat of Christ. It won't be a judgment for sin because Jesus already died for their sin. It will be an evaluation to distribute rewards as they enter joyfully into eternity in heaven. Non-believers will appear before what is described as the great white throne. They will be judged for their sin because they chose to reject Jesus Christ. They will be cast alive into the lake of fire for an eternity of agonizing suffering. These two groups of people and their two destinations were on Jesus' mind as he concluded the Sermon on the Mount. In addition to the two groups and the two destinations, he spoke about two gates, two ways, two trees, two fruits, two builders, and two foundations. In other words, it was decision time for his hearers. He challenged them to decide what group, what destination, what gate, what way, what tree, what fruits, which builder, and which foundation they were going to choose. If you're not a believer, challenge is definitely for you. But it's just as important for believers. It's a challenge to remain in the way and the truth and the life of a relationship with Jesus Christ as we journey homeward. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, the sayings of Jesus mark out a footpath for you to stay on. And number two, the sayings of Jesus lay down a foundation for you to stand on. In verses 13 through 23, we're going to talk about this footpath that you want to stay on. Now, Jesus started this sermon by telling his hearers that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes. As he began to describe the righteousness that he was talking about, he several times prefaced his comments by saying, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. Now at the end of the sermon, in verses 24 and 26, Jesus says, if anyone hears these sayings of mine. And so Jesus' sayings then are his teachings in this sermon and elsewhere about what constitutes the true righteousness by which I will approach God. Now we might think of sayings as quaint little motivational phrases that are on posters where we work. Do you have those posters? 
some people have them, they're framed, they're, you know, they're really cute. And then there's a set of ones that are kind of anti-posters, you know, and stuff. But, so when I hear the word sayings, I think of, you know, Confucius say, or like it's a, you know, a, a fortune cookie or something. Don't think of it that way. The sayings of Jesus are his commands and demands for his disciples. He says, you've heard me say, these are my sayings. Now, in this powerful closing argument, which is sort of like an altar call, he contrasts those who hear and do his sayings with those who hear them but do not do them. And although Jesus clearly had non-believers in mind as those who do not do his sayings, it should concern us as believers if we see in our walk with the Lord any similarities with them. And so verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, the narrow gate is the Bible way of righteousness, that we are all unrighteous sinners and must be declared righteous when we believe on Jesus Christ by grace through faith. The broad way, in context, is the external self-righteousness typical of the Pharisees and scribes. Now, we would expand that to include any other way of approaching God or of living life that does not involve the necessity of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead in order for us to be made right with God. And so anything other than biblical Christianity is the broad way. It's interesting that biblical Christianity is accused by so many seemingly broad-minded individuals of being what? Narrow-minded. I mean, some people have actually said that to some of you. You're so narrow-minded. Well, you know what? That's a compliment. That's accurate. If Jesus said narrow is the gate, uh, then I want to be on going through that narrow gate. So if somebody calls me narrow-minded, hey, I'm on board. The world's way is broad, Think of all the religions, all the philosophies, all the isms that mankind has suggested over the course of human history. None of them deal with the root of the problem, which is sin. I like the old Billy Graham quote, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And none of the philosophies or religions or the isms of the world really deal with the problem of the heart, which is sin. Now, since they cannot atone for your sin, the broad-minded ways of the world all lead ultimately to destruction because that's the real issue. How am I going to deal with sin? The fact that sin was imputed to me, that I inherited a sin nature and that I commit individual acts of sin, what am I going to do about that? That's the issue. And the broad-minded ways of the world lead me to destruction because they have no solution. The persons traveling on any of those paths along the broad way will meet God, but they will meet him when they are raised from the dead to stand before the great great white throne. It's so hard to say that. Say that three times real fast. Where it will be too late to alter their eternal destiny. If the narrow gate is salvation by grace through faith, why does Jesus say it leads to a difficult uh, way, and that it's difficult and it's a difficult way? Well, one reason he might say it is difficult is because a person must admit they're a sinner in need of a savior. 
They must repent. They must turn to God from sin, sometimes at great personal cost and sacrifice. Multitudes find it offensive to be told they're sinners. Others consider the cost and choose to continue in their sin. And so that's one sense in which it's difficult. It's by grace, in one sense, it's free, but it's difficult for people. Theologian Charles Ryrie points out another reason the free gift of salvation might be considered difficult. He says, when we ask someone to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're asking the person to believe in someone he or she has never seen. When we ask someone to believe that Christ can forgive his sins, we're asking him to believe in an almost unbelievable concept. It's not easy to believe that someone whom you and every other living person has never seen did something 2,000 years ago that can take away sin and make you acceptable before a holy God, but it is believing that brings eternal life. And so that's the sense in which it's difficult. Not that there's you know, hard work for us to do to earn uh, entrance into the narrow gate, but that it can be difficult in that sense to believe. Now, in verses 15 through 20, Jesus described the character and the characteristics of the teachers you encounter on the broad way. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Now, I mentioned earlier how crowded with religions and philosophies the broad way is. It's obviously impossible to get accurate figures, but it's estimated that there are at least 4,200 religions in existence today. That's, I'm sure, a very low number, uh, but uh, that, a, a survey of world religions uh, over 4,000 religions. As for philosophies, they are like noses. Everyone has one. There's a ton of philosophies, and uh, they all move in different directions. Jesus' comments are concentrated on the person rather than their particular teachings because all their teachings are one dumber than the next, and none of them uh, deal with the problem of sin. And so the Lord looks at the person. And I think what he was suggesting is that no matter how appealing what they say might sound, if it is not repentance and faith in Jesus as God come in human flesh, then it becomes false and dangerous. He says they are wearing sheep's clothing but are really wolves. Their nature has not been transformed. They want to come across as if they have the words of life, uh, some kind of life that they're offering you, but they have no personal transformation. How can a lost person, dead in their own trespasses and sins, lead you into an abundant eternal life? Most of you know that before I was a Christian and after I graduated from UC Riverside, I applied to Cal State San Bernardino's master's program in psychology uh, for counseling. I had a sincere desire to want to take what I learned and help other people. Now, I had the degrees, but I was at the time a drunk, a stoner, an amoral person completely, and I hated my wife. So welcome to my counseling session. <laughs> now, I don't want to put this out on everyone out there because each situation is different, but a lot of the counselors that people go to 
are drunk, stoner, amoral people who hate their wives or are on their third or fourth marriage. So can you help me with my marriage and raising my children and being a better person? I think that's what Jesus was saying. It's like the blind leaders of the blind. Even if something on the broad way seems to actually work, that's of no eternal value. If I simply reform without being transformed, I may be in a worse situation than remaining in crisis because I'm led to believe I don't need salvation. And so a lot of times people say, well, there are people who aren't like that, Gene. They're really nice people with good marriages and they're really helping people. Okay, that's true. There are things that seem to work temporarily, but they're not gonna work for you when you stand before God and realize that you didn't really deal with the sin issue. Jesus also said, you'll know them by their fruits. If they have not been transformed from within, if they are not indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, there can be no lasting spiritual fruit. No matter what these folk look like, being unsaved, they are like pruned branches or non-producing trees and are headed for nothing more than fire. Now, Christians must be very careful to not borrow from or buy into the broad-minded methods of the world when it comes to issues of life and godliness. We really do have, in the sayings of Jesus, everything we need for life and godliness. The Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, is the only agent that can discern between the soul and the spirit within us and bring restoration or recovery or healing or wholeness or holiness. I, 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 see, and even now you're thinking, well, that's kind of narrow-minded to think that everything we need for life and godliness is in the Bible when we've learned so much, you know, over the years about human psychology and all that. No, no, we really haven't. I remember asking one of my professors, which one of these psychological systems is, is the one? Is the, not, not, I didn't even say the best one. I said, which one is the right one? She thought I was an imbecile there, because that, no, you can't answer that. They're all just different. There is no right one. That should trouble you that there are so many different psychologies and none of them are right, that they all take a certain position. And when you go to therapy in each of them, you have about the same success rate in each one. None of them has a higher success rate. And the success rate is really very low. And you probably got better just because you were talking to your friends at the same time. There's, you know, people who think that there's one psychological truth, yeah, there is. It's in the Bible where God says, I can tell you all about you. You're a trichotomy of spirit, soul, and body, but your spirit is dead until you meet me. And then when your spirit comes alive, it can rule over your soul and your body as you yield and all that. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty tremendous psychology as opposed to the junk that you get out in the world. And so we just need to be careful. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
Now, I don't understand, and I never will, why unsaved people are empowered to do some of these things, except that God is merciful to help the recipients of their signs and wonders. The point Jesus is making is that no amount of works earns you a golden ticket to heaven. Regardless your spiritual resume, doing the will of the Father is the standard Jesus sets. Instead of doing the will of God, he says they practice lawlessness. It's a distinction uh, between what they profess publicly and what they practice privately. In other words, these folks claim to be followers of Jesus. They call him Lord, Lord, for emphasis. And they even have works to show for it that seem to be spiritual. But privately, they disobey his will and practice things that are clearly forbidden by the laws of God. A biblical example. Judas went about with the other apostles doing signs and wonders. But he was not saved, and he was simultaneously stealing money from their offerings. And so that's the kind of person that the Lord has in mind. He's not talking about the fact that we still struggle with sin on a daily basis, that we have to go to the Lord and confess so that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's talking about a person who has begun to practice lawlessness, who knows what the Bible says is the will of God and has decided it is not his will for them. They're still Christians, oh, they still love the Lord, but in this area or in these areas, they know better or it doesn't apply to them. And more and more, I am encountering folks who claim to be Christians. They have a spiritual heritage and resume, but they're living in sin, and they're acting like it's okay, at least for them. Some go so far as to claim their sin is God's will for them. For example, the Bible says, for this is the will of God. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. People say, well, how do I know the will of God? This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Now, there's a lot of other things that are the will of God, but this is, if you want to know what the will of God is, this is a very clear one. Paul says, here's the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Yet today, not only are people who profess to be believers living together in sexual immorality, they're claiming it's okay with God in their case for whatever reason. It's God's will that they're together. God doesn't recognize marriage anyway. This is my first true love, whatever. It, it, it just, or they don't think about it at all. And so we would look at that and say, well, there's a, there's a problem there. There's a disconnect. There's a, there's a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord. And they are not just struggling with sin. They are practicing lawlessness. They've given over to, they, they don't even believe that it's sin. Are they Christians? I don't know anymore. But I don't want to assume they are since the consequences are grave. Jesus, you know, he says some heavy things in this section. He says, there are some people who think they're Christians and they're gonna call me Lord in the last day and I'm gonna say, I didn't know you. You're gonna have to depart from me. And I don't know how to soften that and still retain the message. 
Jesus is going to say to some people who are not doing the will of God, I never knew you. Now, right now, if you're a believer, you're being assaulted in some decision you need to make. You're being tempted by the world to broaden your way of thinking because that's the way the world works. It's always trying to expand your way of thinking. There's this narrow gate you entered in through salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, a difficult path of Uh, yielding to the spirit rather than the flesh. There's a struggle, there's a battle, and then the world is always saying, no, no, (laughs) you need to expand your ideas here. You're you're some backwoods, backwards thinker here. I mean, this is the 21st century. We know a lot more than they did when they wrote the Bible or those kinds of things. And so you may not even know, but you're being assaulted where you live, where you work, Sometimes in your church, hopefully not this church, but in churches, to broaden your way of thinking to include things that are really not the will of God. The narrow gate and the difficult path are normal. This is, I was really ministered to this week. The Lord just spoke to my heart and he said, you know, Gene, these things, this is what's normal, not what the world says. What the world says is abnormal. What I'm telling you, this is the normal Christian life. It's the normal Christian life intended to bring blessing and abundance to those who walk on it. Don't buy into criticisms that you're too narrow-minded as if you're missing something, as if God has it in for you. The Lord died for you on the cross. He rose from the dead to offer you life. He's not going to withhold from you any truly good thing. As for the broad way, we might want to think of it as an ever-broadening way. The world is always pushing God's loving boundaries, always making the broad way broader, so to speak. If we're not careful, as Christians, we can find ourselves on a narrower way than those in the world that a few years ago we would have considered a broad way that leads to destruction. Sometimes we talk about becoming desensitized, but I think this is a more biblical way of understanding it, that I was once walking on this narrow path, but because the world kept assaulting me and assaulting me, they're way over here, but I moved a little bit closer. I'm doing things that are a little bit more broad-minded in terms of my thinking process and my entertainments and my hobbies and my habits and all that. I'm on a little bit broader path than I was once. It's not anywhere near the broad path of the world. It's very narrow compared to what's going on in the world, but it's, is it narrow enough? Is it the narrow path that God really wants me on? That's what I need to deal with. Verse 24 through 29, the sayings of Jesus lay down a foundation for you to stand on. Now, we've established that you're going to be seen as a narrow-minded person. You're surrounded by broad-minded people whose choices and decisions are going to be very different from yours. You're going to be misunderstood, you're going to be ridiculed, you're going to be criticized by unsaved family and friends. They'll have opinions about how you live, how you raise your kids, about your priorities and your habits and your pursuits because they're on that broad way. They don't understand why you have to have a more narrow focus. More and more, you're even going to be criticized by other believers who have relaxed the Lord's standards in order to fit into the world more. And so it's a, it's a very serious kind of pressure that we're under in the world. Since we are strangers and pilgrims journeying through a world that is opposed to our Lord, a world whose God is the devil... There will always be pressure from both within and without to compromise the sayings of Jesus, 
To encourage us, the Lord gave the illustration of the wise builder. In it, we're reminded to look at the big picture to consider the end of all things. And so verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house. It did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. How many disaster movies have there been, and will there yet be, in which the evil capitalist corporation cut corners in order to make a profit, but in the end, lives were lost? I mean, it's it's a classic theme. The sad thing is it plays out in real life sometimes. I mean, the reason we relate to that is because sometimes it's true. It does play out in real life. You don't want it to play out in your life. You don't want to cut corners in what you're building spiritually and find yourself in a place of destruction. Now, believers build their lives day by day. Non-believers build their lives day by day whose lives usually seem better off and more secure? Well, that's right. The non-believer's life usually seems better. If it didn't, we wouldn't have any problem, right? It wouldn't be an allurement to us. It wouldn't be a temptation to us if we could look at the life of an unbeliever and say, who wants to live like that? But instead, Asaph in Psalm 73, for example, he looks around and he says, here, I've, I'm having health problems. Everything's going wrong in my life. I've got Obamacare and, you know, I can't figure things out. And here's this rich guy over here that curses you to your face and, uh, you know, you're blessing him. And so the idea is that the, the person that, that's on the broad way of the world, they just seem to be making out great. And you're sacrificing and you think, what am I doing this for? No matter appearances, if you're not building on a rock-solid foundation, the structure will not survive the coming storms. And even if you get through life relatively unscathed, as we must admit some non-believers do, what you build upon the shifting sand of the world apart from Jesus cannot survive the final judgment of God. And so we're thinking a lot about the final judgment of God here. Some, some non-believers, they coast through life. They never have any tragedies. They never have any struggles. And then they finally just die and they have a big funeral and everybody eulogizes them. And you think, well, I thought Jesus said the storms of life were gonna knock them down. That, that's not life. That's a few decades on the earth and then there's eternity. And there's a storm of judgment coming upon people who aren't safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. We, we're not, I hope we're not living just for, you know, to maybe make it to 70 or 80 or, you know, my dad died when he was 93 and he was in pretty good health. Um, but, you know, right up until the end, uh, is that what we're living for? 90 years? Sounds like a long time, doesn't it? We like, you know, those, wow, this person was 90 years old. Yeah, and, and there is an eternity to consider. 
And so that's what Jesus is elevating our thinking to. Keep in mind, you're gonna live forever. Believe it or not, you are. Believer or non-believer, you're going to live forever. It pays to build as if you were going to live forever. And that means it pays to build on the solid rock that is Christ. Apostle Paul picked up on this builder illustration. He described your appearance as a believer before Jesus' judgment seat as if you were going to be reviewed by the materials you use to build upon the rock-solid foundation. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw... Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now think of the projects around your house. There are always choices in materials. Some will do the job, but they won't last as long. You might choose them if you're putting your house on the market. I just need this to look good. I'm going to get the 99-cent flooring instead of the 399 flooring because, after all, it just needs to look good. Other materials have a much higher quality. You choose them if you plan on living in your house for any length of time. Now, the point Paul was making seems to be this. As a Christian, building upon the foundation of Jesus, you can choose either costly or common materials, which are either more or less permanent. The Lord leaves it up to you to determine just how committed to him you're going to be on your way to the judgment seat. Go for the gold. Invest more and more in heaven and less and less on the earth. In fact, pause for a second right now. Ask yourself if it can be said that you are building more for heavenly rewards than for earthly comforts. Verse 28, and so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Anything Jesus said is greater than everything ungodly men have said. Does the word of God still astonish you? Not the teaching of it, not that you hear a good teaching. The word itself. Do you sit in awe and wonder that almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, speaks to you, lives in you, loves you with an everlasting love, that he's building you a mansion in a celestial city, that he's coming for you to present you faultless before his father in heaven? Those kinds of thoughts are astonishing when you think about it. I know I take it for granted. I, I, it becomes common almost. And then I think, oh, I should be astonished that he loves a wretch like me. Pray every day in every way that we would again be astonished by God. One of the commentators, I think it was G. Campbell Morgan, pointed out that this entire section could be summarized by Jesus' declaration in the Gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the way. Faith in Jesus is the footpath embarked upon through the narrow gate. I am the truth, as opposed to the multitudes of wolves in sheep's clothing peddling false religions and philosophies that are fruitless and cannot save or sanctify you. I am the life. He is eternal life for those who will be rewarded at the judgment seat to live forever in heaven. Sayings of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount and everywhere else in the Word of God mark out the normal footpath you who have entered by the narrow gate should stay on. 
and they encourage building a life that will last beyond this world on into eternity. Let's pray.